Everything seems fine as a Boeing 747-100 takes off out of the San Francisco airport. How did some miscalculations cause there to be a giant hole ripped into this plane? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everyone. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. How's it going? We're struggling. <laughs> so hard. For those of you who have access to the blooper reel, we started this episode. Miranda was singing Batman and then swore and then swore because she swore. and then I almost <laughs> swore. I caught myself. I was, <laughs> it was going to be a lot worse. And then it wasn't. It was off to a rough start before we ever even started. Yeah. That's like primarily my fault. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> I haven't even been drinking that much. I know. Barely got started here. All right. What are we covering today? Today we are covering Pan Am Flight 845. Ooh, fun. Yeah. We realized that we hadn't really covered a non-fatal accident in a while. For a long time. Like yeah. since the second episode. <laughs> yeah. So, so here we go. This flight took place on July 30th of 1971. It was a 747-100 registered as November 747 Papa Alpha. And be it that that was the tail number on there, I was really curious because normally when airlines receive the first of some type of airplane, they name it the airplane type and their initials. So November 747 Papa Alpha would be November Boeing 747 Pan Am. So I thought maybe this is the first one they got. Well, it wasn't. But interestingly enough, this was the second 747 ever built, and it was used for Boeing's test flights. Da-da-da-da! Yep. The airplane already had 2,800 hours on it by the time it got to this point, and it was, like, brand new. Literally literally brand spanking new. This was a scheduled flight from LAX to Tokyo with a stopover in San Francisco. The airplane arrived in San Francisco and refueled and had a crew change. The captain that took over at that point was Calvin Y. Dyer. He was 57 from California, 27,209 hours total, of which 868 hours were on the 747. The first officer was Paul E. Oakes. He was 41 from Nevada. He had 10,568 hours total. By the way, he was the least experienced on board. At 10,568 hours, he was the least experienced on board. That's pretty crazy. And he had 595 hours on the 747. The flight engineer was Winfrey Horn. There's a name. He was 57 from California, 23,569 hours total. And Holy a, crap. And 168 on the 747. Yep, so both the captain and the flight engineer had over 20,000 flight hours, which is pretty crazy as it is. That's insane. And then the first officer had over 10,000, but none of them had 1,000 hours on the 747 because it was so new. It was brand new. It was. Are you going to bring up the other crew members? I don't have their names or hours or anything because they weren't available. But Okay, well, there was a backup crew on board. Yeah, there was. Yeah, there was a backup crew on board because the flight was expected to be long, so they had to have a crew change. Oh. This will become important later. Why? But, um, I kind of wasn't paying attention a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thanks. Sorry. Makes me feel um, important. What, where were they going and where from? They were going from LAX to Tokyo, but they stopped oh. over in San Francisco. Oh, uh, okay. So this was all in San Francisco that this captain, first officer, and flight engineer took over. Oh, okay. <sighs> Sorry, excuse me. Okay, thank you. They boarded and uh, 
the I think the backup crew was actually the crew that flew it from LAX to San Fran. Okay. I'll take your word for it at this point. Anyways, so this flight crew boarded the airplane at about 2.30 p.m. Pacific time. The checklists were then completed, and they prepared for flight. The flight pushed back from the gate at 3.01 p.m. The first officer listened to the current ATIS at that point, which is the Automated Terminal Information System, and that gives you basically data on the, the airport at the time. It's current usually for an hour to an hour and a half at the airport, and it gives you information important to the airport's conditions, closed things, open things, weather conditions, and then it gives you a word in the aviation alphabet to spit back to the tower when you contact them. That way they know you've gotten that information. That you have that particular set of that, information. Yeah, that particular hour's information. And in this case, that ATIS information was X-ray. And that ATIS info X-ray made him aware that runway 28 left was closed and that the first 1,000 feet of 01 right was closed as well. The flight crew had discussed with the dispatcher at the dispatch office prior to boarding the flight and had planned to depart on the longer 28 left with 01 right as the alternate. And the dispatcher in this case in the report is called a flight controller. So you'll hear me say flight controller versus air traffic controller. They are two different things. The flight controller works for the airline and helped them plan this flight. Oh, right. They're the ones who, like, make the routes and stuff, right? Yeah, they're the ones these days known as dispatch. Aircraft dispatch. They are dispatchers. So that's the same same job, basically, in this case. They they control with the the flight crew, making sure they know their route, weights, balance, everything. The first officer then contacted the flight controller at the Pan Am office via the company radio to ask about the runway closures that were on the ATIS, as they hadn't discussed it in their planning. The flight controller then contacted the tower to discuss this. At 3.12 p.m., the flight controller at the Pan Am office contacted the flight crew back, confirming that the closed runways were in effect after talking to the tower. The first officer then asked for the limitations of using 2-8 right instead, but the flight controller informed them that 0-1 right had been considered in the planning as the alternate and should be within their limitations. The first officer then asked about the 1,000-foot closure on 0-1 right that was noted on the ATIS. The flight controller replied that he was not aware of any limitations, but he would check with the tower. He contacted the tower and confirmed that the 1,000-foot was closed, the, the first 1,000 feet of 0-1 right was closed, but that there was no limitations for the Boeing 747. The flight controller then advised 845 of that, saying, quote, Talk to Tower. The thousand feet they were talking about that's closed is actually overrun. You couldn't start from that point in any event because of thrust damage. Start at the painted threshold and you still have 9,500 feet plus clearway ahead of you. End quote. To translate all that, <laughs> um, an overrun is, is actually where it, it offsets the threshold at... Uh, San Francisco. So some airplanes can start from before what would be considered the end of the runway in this overrun distance, but it's considered extra space. It's not considered to be part of the actual runway itself. It is a distance of an extra thousand feet at the end of the runway. 1,100 feet. 1,100 feet, yes. But in any case, it's the extra space at the end of the runway, and what they were told, based on the charts with the 747, they're not allowed to use that space because it's too close to the obstacles behind it, and it would cause damage. Let me guess. They did anyway. No. They didn't. Oh. Nope. They were perfectly fine with that. An additional discussion between the flight crew and the flight controller 
continued that established the departure for 01 right would require a 20 degree of flap setting instead of the 10 degrees they had previously set. The flaps were then set to 20 degrees before the plane departed the run-up area where it had been waiting, trying to decide what runway to use. At 3.26 p.m., the flight was told to position and hold on runway 01 right, and position and hold is literally just line up on the center line of the runway and hold still until you're cleared to take off. At 3.28 p.m., they were cleared for takeoff and began their takeoff roll. Wind at that time was 270 at 22, which is much more conducive to using runway 28 left because 270 would have been almost right down the runway. So they had a 22-degree knot crosswind. The first officer then called the V1, which V, in this case, uh, we call them reference speeds. They are determined based on weight, balance, runway distance, and flap setting. All of those things combined give you what your normal speeds would be for flap setting and weight, and V1 would be your, uh, your point of no return, basically. You have committed to doing this takeoff. And he called that at the bug, quote-unquote. The bug is a term in aviation that is the manually movable indices on instruments to display desired speeds. So there is basically on the, the dial itself for speed, they have a little knob where they can actually adjust a little, basically, tick mark. And they can set that where they want that reference speed to be. So V1 would have been his first reference point. He calls out V1 at that quote-unquote bug, that little indicator, as soon as he gets there. So he called it as soon as he got to that bug. He then called out VR, or rotate, so the point where the captain pulls back on the stick to lift the nose up, because the end of the runway was, quote, coming at a very rapid speed, end quote. At 3.29, the airplane rotated, and the flight crew then felt a thump, or a jolt. The airplane had run through the auto-landing system for the opposite direction, and the approach lights for the opposite direction, which was runway 19 left. It's a bad day. Yep. Passenger cabin had been penetrated, and several landing gear structures were immediately noted as being damaged. Two passengers in seats 47G and 48G were severely injured, and medical personnel uh, on board rushed to help. The flight crew opted to keep the gear and flaps configured the way they were while they addressed and assessed the damage. And they held it about 2,500 to 3,000 feet the whole time. They flew out over the Pacific per ATC's instructions to dump fuel because they needed to get down to a weight they could land at. They needed to dump approximately 180,000 pounds of fuel. That's a lot of fuel. That is a lot of fuel. Down to a total weight for the airplane of 430,000 pounds. So, a hefty airplane. A Coast Guard ship, which had picked up some Pan Am uh, crew and was carrying them on board, alerted them out over the Pacific that the belly landing gear was destroyed. One appeared to be heavily damaged into the fuselage, and the other one was dangling. They flew for one hour and 42 minutes after that takeoff with massive holes in the fuselage and landing gear dangling. So, question, before we move too far past it. Why were Pan Am personnel with the Coast Guard? To assess the airplane from the outside. So they were told that... Um, yeah, no, they didn't just happen to be there. Issue. No, they were okay. just—they didn't just happen to be there. I thought they were just there. like chilling on a Coast Guard boat, like, no. oh look, there's a damaged plane up there. No, the Coast Guard had picked them up and taken them out to the Pacific, where the airplane was circling, oh. in order to help them identify problems with the airplane before landing. Oh, okay. At least they were low enough that they didn't have depressurization issues. Yeah, no kidding. Yep, they flew for an hour and forty-two minutes before returning to the airport for an emergency landing 
which they opted for runway 228 left, the closed runway, by the way. Why was it closed? Uh, they said maintenance. Runway maintenance. What kind of maintenance? They didn't say, but it was only closed for that day, so it wasn't anything heavy. But they opted to take that runway because it was the longer runway. As they approached the airport, they noted that the flight controls became very difficult and sluggish to maneuver. They used flaps 30 degrees. Did the flight engineer not alert them of anything at this point? I don't recall. It's not in the story. Okay, I'll get to it. Yep. They used flaps 30 degrees and all their normal speeds and procedures for landing as if it were going to be a normal landing. They attempted to make it as normal as possible, basically. The aircraft touched down hard, bounced, and then recontacted the ground. Then as it slowed down, it slowly veered to the right, off the right side of the runway, into the dirt between all four runways and the intersection. Yep. Which basically closed San Francisco until further notice. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. So they landed on their belly then? Because the landing gear was like messed up? So not exactly. The 747's landing gear configuration, there's one at the nose, just like every airplane. And then there's two sets of landing gear under the wings... Uh, under each wing, and those have two axles each, so four axles underneath the wing, and then there's two sets under the belly. Those two sets under the belly were the ones that were damaged, not the ones under the wing. So they could still hold them up underneath the wing, but the two sets that were underneath the belly were damaged, so they're literally attached to the fuselage of the airplane instead of the wing. So was the back of the fuselage on the ground then? That's the interesting thing. We'll get to it. We'll get to that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay. So, that 1,100 feet we were talking about, without the 1,100 feet, the runway was 8,400 feet. Which was what they didn't know. This was one of the key mistakes. When, the, when dispatch told the plane to use 01 right, he didn't know that the 1,100 feet is what made the runway 9,500 feet, which is what he told them was, it, he t- said, it is 9,500 feet. He didn't know that was including the 1,100 feet they couldn't use. Right. In the investigation, in talking to... The flight controller and air traffic control, because they had had a conversation back and forth about these 1,100 feet, what was determined was that in the Pan Am manual for the 747, it called out 9,500 feet of usable length on 01 right for that airplane. Except what they never knew, what Pan Am never knew and never put in their manuals, is that 9,500 feet was never usable by the 747 on 01 right. Only 8,400 feet was ever usable for the 747. So was it too short then? It was shorter than they expected. It was not too short for this airplane, but it was shorter than they expected. So- 747s had used it before and had no issue. They also weren't this heavy, and they also planned particularly for it. However, that said, the air traffic controller, when they interviewed him, he said, I had assumed that... The Pan Am flight controller understood, since I said there was no limitations for the 747 and nothing was different for the 747 than normal, that he knew that meant 8,400 feet instead of 9,500. But because Pan Am's manual said 9,500 feet, the flight controller, the dispatcher, assumed 
that 9,500 feet was the usable distance for the 747 and not the total distance of the runway. So they were too heavy to have used only that small amount of runway then? Not no. exactly, no. So there was another. why did they hit Let the lights? Let me get into it. There was another critical, there was two other critical mistakes in this accident. Okay. So, as the crew was making the transition to use runway 01 right instead of 28 left, as they had originally planned for, Pan Am's dispatch said that they would be able to use it with a configuration of 20 degrees for flaps instead of their already planned for 10 degrees. Now, when a pilot is taking off, they calculate two primary reference speeds, as Nick had mentioned, V1 and VR. In going through the checklist to enact takeoff, there is not a step to review the configuration and reference speeds. Therefore, the pilots did not recalculate their reference speeds with the new flaps configuration. VR should have been changed from 164 knots to 157 knots. If they'd used the proper configuration and speeds for 20 degrees flaps, they would have been able to take off in 7,400 feet plus or minus 200 feet. But because they had used the wrong speeds in, the, in place, it took an extra 1,000 feet, again, plus or minus 200 feet, which put them at 8,430 feet. The runway is 8,400 feet. So. Which makes the length of usable runway inside that margin of error of a plus or minus 200 feet, making variables like brake release really critical in order to make this takeoff. So the flaps were in the wrong configuration for the speed they had, or they didn't go other fast way around. the other way around. So they didn't have the speeds corrected for the flap setting. What so flaps they went, do... So they went too slow? No, they went, they went too, too fast. fast. Oh. What happens is the flaps, the, the further you increase them, the slower the speed is needed for takeoff. So they had a, they had originally said in the basically 165 knot range was where they were going to originally lift with 10 degrees of flaps on 2.8 left because they had 10,000 some odd feet of distance to use on that runway. On one, zero one right, they only had 8,400 feet, but at 20 degrees of flaps should have corrected that problem. If it would have been had a, 157 knots It would have been 157 knots, which would have shortened the distance runway needed for takeoff because it allows the airplane to lift at a slower speed and lift sooner. Is it because there's more area across the wing? Yes, yes. exactly. Okay. There's more area across the wing, which as so you increase... So there's more ability to to gain lift with a slower amount of speed. Yes, as you increase the surface area of the wing, you increase the lift component. So they were going too fast to have lifted off where they were supposed to. Yes. Yes, and it also chewed up an extra thousand feet of runway that they didn't need to. Right. The airplane would have lifted sooner, but because he called out V1 and VR too late, the pilot pulled back on the stick too late. The landing gear was the first thing to strike the lighting system at the end of the runway, hitting the first of the first three platforms. After those three, the pilots continued to rotate to climb, which actually lowered the tail slightly, causing it um, and the underside of the fuselage to be dragged through about 300 feet of the lighting system. Part of the approach lighting system, or ALS, penetrated the lower fuselage, cabin, and the vertical fin, as well as the wing flaps, horizontal stabilizer, and the elevators. So it was even lucky they were even able to maintain flight after that. Yep. This caused failure of the hydraulic systems 1, 3, and 4. I was going to ask, <laughs> is it a hydraulic problem when when he said that they were having issues with the flight controls? Okay, so you think that was scary. There's four hydraulic systems. 1, 3, and 4 are shot. They were within four inches of penetrating hydraulic system 2. 
So they, they would have been completely without hydraulics. Then they would have had nothing. Four inches is what saved their butts. <laughs> yep. They were. Ma- they managed to fly for another hour and 42 minutes and bring it back with it, it, four inches of space. Uh, uh, when landing, they configured the plane for flaps 30 degrees, assuming that could still happen with their limited hydraulics, and a threshold crossing speed of 123 knots, which is what it normally would have been for a flaps configuration of 25 degrees. The crew did not discuss landing faster to maintain control, as the plane was controllable at or above 140 knots, which is pretty close to 123 knots. Yep. However, they began to lose control once their rate of descent passed through 200 feet. The captain had immediately applied power to increase speed and therefore control, but it was too late before one runway contact. Quote, There was no information in any of the manuals or in the training curriculum pertaining to degradation of longitudinal control effectiveness when only one of the four elevator sections was operable, end quote. Upon touchdown, the captain pulled the engines for reverse thrust, but only engine four indicated the reverse thrust was deployed, so the engine veered slowly to the right. So only one thrust reverser was usable? Yep. Yep. And because it was therefore asymmetrical, the plane turned. Is that because they didn't have all the hydraulics? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. The first officer then made the announcement to evacuate, but that message did not reach the cabin for two reasons. One, another crew member had turned off the battery power, including communications to the cabin, indicating a breakdown in emergency procedure, as that should have happened after the announcement. Two... This is the dumb one. He accidentally sent that message to the radio for the tower instead of the cabin. Okay, that's pretty dumb. (laughs) I was going to be like, well, why would they do that before? But if it would have never gotten there because he sent it to the tower instead of the thing. Yep. That's pretty dumb. So, yep. So the passengers never got an order to evacuate. They were just chilling there? Because of this. What else do you think they would have to do? When the second officer and the second engineer, so part of the backup crew went to the cabin to help with the evacuation, everyone was still in their seats. Yeah, so I was going to... Everyone was just chilling. <laughs> so they initiated the evacuation, and they were the ones to open the number one left and right exits, as well as number two right exit. They had only shouted to evacuate instead of using bullhorns that were readily available. So the crew members in the back didn't hear this and didn't start evacuation procedures until they visually saw the front crew evacuating. And then they're like, oh, we should probably do that. Evacuation <laughs> was a mess in this case. It gets worse. Just wait. Oh, yeah, it does. Oh, wait. I think I know why. Okay. Eight passengers evacuated from the forward section, but the rest moved to the rear of the cabin since there was either full or partial failure of the slides two, three, and four on the left and four on the right. This shift in weight caused the entire aircraft to tilt backward and rest on the rear fuselage, lifting the nose in the air. This, by the way, is a fun fact. Engineers at Boeing, as well as nobody in aviation at any point in time, had any idea what removing the belly landing gear from a 747 would actually do. What they didn't know is what that would do is the airplane would lean backward under just a little bit too much weight. It's a seesaw. It's a seesaw. (laughs) It leaned backward and it stayed there. Because of this, Boeing changed its fuel dumping procedure in an incident that might make the belly landing gear unusable. After this you had to keep 40,000 pounds in excess of the standpipe level in order to offset passenger movement. So if they had had more fuel in the wings, it wouldn't have rotated. Because more weight would have been forward of the CG. So, okay, help me out here, because I'm having a a slightly hard time (laughs) figuring all this out. So was it because the slides didn't deploy at the 
front of the plane that Not everyone the went back? Front, no. They were on the left side of the airplane, as well as one on the right side did not deploy. So they all moved to the back to use the more usable exits. Because most of the usable exits were on the right side, but toward the rear. Yep. And that's why the whole thing rotated. And And even further, they kept moving backwards, because as the airplane tilted upward, then the front ones were too high to use. They were off the ground. Yep. So why, but why didn't people use the front ones if they were available to use? So, I don't know if you can tell, but one of them is actually wrapped around the other, making both of them unusable. Yeah, do you see the one from the top deck wrapped around the one on the bottom deck, which literally blocked off the bottom deck slide? It turns out the slides on the 747 weren't designed to handle wind, which there was at this airport. And as the slide attempted to inflate, it wrapped itself around the bottom slide. Not before eight people could get out... What we don't know is if those eight people were injured, because it was noted that eight people were severely injured with during back, evacuation with back injuries during evacuation. It does not say it's those eight, but... But those numbers line up. Okay. What were the slides made out of that it made them so light that the wind could carry them? I mean, they're a, a thick canvas rubber material. I keep forgetting that the 747 has two decks, by the way. So I was yeah. like, how would they wrap around each other? They're not <laughs> well, even that close. The well, one from, from a talk. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, the 747, depending on which series it is, has a shorter top deck, and its length depends on which series of the 747 it is. And so they have an exit, an emergency exit from that deck, but the slide that deployed from that deck wrapped around the slide from the lower deck, making both of them not usable. Because the slide from the upper deck blocked the the door the door to get out on the lower deck. the lower deck. Um, we'll by post mistake. the pictures on the website. You can see them. Um, it's pretty obvious that it's like covering the door from. But also, even if it hadn't, that after the plane rotated, you couldn't use the front ones because the bottom of the slide wasn't touching the ground. You yeah. would have hurt yourself. It was a vertical drop of quite a few stories. <laughs> yeah. That, I just, okay. Yeah, that was uh, quite the interesting situation. Oh, fun fact. So before we get to findings, I just, a co-worker of mine, her husband works for United, the simulators. Mm -hmm. He does simulators and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he, every once in a while, has to go down the slides. I've done that Uh, at United. Yeah, it's like a thing they have to do Mm -hmm. to test the slides and stuff. Yeah, Nick's dad has to test slides all the time. He and says packing them back in is one of the worst things ever. Oh, yep. I bet. But it's kind of like a sleeping bag. Like, you can never get it back in quite the way it's supposed to go in, you know? Yeah. You kind of just have to shove it in until it fits. Yep. And then it, it just it doesn't fit quite right. Anyway, so I was we were talking about um, whenever you travel, you should always wear pants. And you should always wear shoes that won't come off your feet. Yep. And... My other coworker was like, why? I'm like, first of all, you can lose your shoes. But if you don't wear pants, you can get rug burn because they're canvas. And it's, yeah, it's actually, because I remember when, I remember going down the slide since I've done it. And yeah, I mean, if you, it's it's nowhere near as fun as you actually expect it it's to be. It's not like a bouncy house slide. No. Like, it's like full on hard canvas. It is hard canvas. It's if blown you... up to the point where it can withstand weight, you know. Right. Because usually if... they can become rafts. Yeah. Right. If you don't, you're, you're supposed to cross your arms across your chest. And yes, it's much better if you wear long, long pants because 
if you slide down, they can give you not only like rug burns, they can give you like serious, serious burns. People get serious injuries from them. It's unfortunate, but I mean, it's still safer than being dead. <laughs> also, you have to jump out. Like you can't just sit, yeah, sit you, on your butt and scoot. You no, have to jump you out. You have to jump onto, onto the it. slide. Yeah. So always wear pants and always wear shoes that won't come off. Yep. Don't wear flip flops. Don't wear slide ons. Don't wear stilettos. That neither. The people who wear heels to the airport, why? <laughs> why? Professionalism. Okay. <laughs> like if you're gonna go, like flight attendants, I get. Okay. Yeah, but they were wedges. Like, they're block heels. They're not stilettos. And they still have only a certain height they can go to because they have to be able to help people. Right. But, like, those people who, like, I'm going to be cute on the plane and wear three-inch heels. Like, no one, no. No. Sorry. That's that's just you being uncomfortable for you. Like, no one cares. Sorry. That's, like, kind of a tangent, but I just wanted to say that the canvas, the slides are made out of really rough canvas, and they can burn really bad. Yeah, they can. Absolutely. Pants and sneakers. Pants and sneakers. All right. Findings. We'll jump into findings. So there weren't very many findings or recommendations in this report. It was actually really clear and easy to read. I like that. Oh, nice old NTSB reports. (laughs) Yeah, really old. Um, In terms of versions, this is pretty, pretty new to the NTSB being around. Uh, They were about four years old at this point. Yep. The most annoying thing with this report is it was typewritten and it was scanned poorly. Yeah. So, so there are sometimes I'm like, what some word pages, is that? Yeah, some pages are slanted, some words are broken. It's kind of weird. Anyways, in the findings, they found that there were sufficient runway distance for a takeoff of the 747 on zero on right, but the runway did not meet FAA standards for a takeoff in the existing conditions. Why? Well... This gets kind of strange. It turns out that zero one right. If the FAA had audited it, audited it, there's a audited thing. it. Yes, it's like an enemy, an enemy, an enemy, I hate that word. I avoid using it when I can. Anyways, they the FAA and the NTSB after looking at zero one right after this incident. It turns out, per FAA standards, zero one right. Would have been unusable. They never would have let a 747 fly on it. They never would have let anything fly on it, as Why? a matter of fact. Because runways used for commercial aircraft in the United States were supposed to have a 500-foot clearway. You may have heard me say that when I was talking about the flight controller relaying that information to the first officer. A clearway is supposed to be a distance off the end of the runway right, right, right. that has nothing in its way, and within a certain distance of the end of the runway, there is supposed to be nothing above a certain height either. To allow an aircraft to climb out at a, a relatively standard uh, angle of departure off the end of the runway, if it were to use the whole thing. Which in this case, they did. And it turns out that the approach lighting system for runway 19 left went all the way to the threshold and was too tall and got rid of that 500 foot clearway. I don't think it was even the lighting system that was in the clearway. It was like the handrail for the servicemen to yeah, service the lighting system. Right. It was the handrail to get them up to the top of the lighting system that was technically above the the minimum or the maximum height for the clearway. And also, they struck it. Also, the run, but the lights did go too far into, they were too close to the end of the runway. 
They also said that there were barges and other things that were within this clearway distance that was supposed to be there and wasn't, which gave the airplane no chance. I feel like that's one of those things where you have that extra space somewhere, and you're like, I'm just going to put something there because it's there, but you're supposed to keep it, like, you know, open. Uh, so they put stuff there because they could, and because they're like, we have all this extra space at the end of this runway. Let's just uh, put a lighting put, system, put a lighting system yep. in there because yeah, we can, and they didn't. You shouldn't. They shouldn't have. Right. To note, uh, San Francisco is right on the water, the airport. And so one nine left approaches over the bay, and the end of the runway, the end of that five hundred foot clearway, is a a, a seawall. A seawall, yeah. And then it's just water. Is that the same runway that another crash happened? It is not. It is okay. the other two. Got it. Anyways, we'll go over that one sometime. Yep. Cartwheels. They found that the tower controller used a preferential runway option even though the crosswind component was too high for the limitations of that runway's use. So, yeah, fun fact. Zero One Right was also not certified for as high of winds for a crosswind component, crosswind being the runway going perpendicular or counter to directly down the runway, and that creates a crosswind component for pilots. That means they have to take off expecting the wind to carry them sideways as soon as they left. So there's a lot of things the pilots have to plan for mentally, and flight control-wise, when they're encountering a crosswind. And in this case, Zero One Right was not rated for this high of a crosswind. Okay. <laughs> and the flight con- and the f- air traffic controller had given them the instructions to go to this runway, as well as the flight controller had chosen this as a preferential runway used instead of a need to use. So then why was anybody gonna use that runway then i feel like that <laughs> because air traffic controller wanted them to that that's, was the instructions they were that's given. that's great but it's not supposed to be operable right but at the same time they may not have been going off of these standards and they'd had many airplanes take off just fine that day okay i hate that though it's like just because you can do it and it has been done doesn't right. mean you should do it because exactly. eventually something like this is gonna happen and it's true absolutely that's <laughs> why we try to avoid those kinds of things and that's why they're standards They found that the takeoff and gross weight calculations used by the flight controller was based on a departure plan for 28 left. They found that the flight controller did not check existing or forecasted conditions prior to the departure planning for flight 845. Yeah, he didn't check the weather. I'm just not going to check the weather. And I'm not going to really change the plan from the other runway. I'm just going to transfer it to another runway. Yeah, he had, to be fair, he had planned it as an alternate. Partially because the tower uses it as a preferential runway. They just send people off on zero one right all the time. They have four runways, but that's the one they like. In place of 28 left. They found that the closure of runway 28 left and the closure of the first 1,000 feet of zero one right was not included in the appropriate NOTAM or notice to airmen on the ATIS or information given. So, in other words, that information for... 2-8 left being closed completely, and 1,000 feet of zero one right being closed wasn't included in any information that the pilots could access at the time of their planning. Now, this was the third mistake. This was the other really big mistake that happened. It turns out that day, they had planned for 2-8 left to be closed. And for all of the ATIS, or that we discussed earlier, the Automated Terminal Information System, reports that were... Oh, it turns out that the all of the ATIS informations that were given earlier that day had included 
the information for the closure of 28 left and the 1,000 foot closure on 01 right. Information Whiskey, which was gathered at the exact time Flight 845 was planning their flight, had omitted both of that information. That the runway was closed and that the 1,100 feet was closed. So the flight controller that was helping them, the dispatcher that was helping them plan their flight, as well as the flight crew, didn't even have access to that information when they were in the dispatch office planning this. That's why the dispatcher kept having to call the tower and be like, hey, is this actually closed? And the tower's like, yeah. And to further this, the planner that was helping them was actually in interim because the normal planner that would have helped them with this flight and was aware of more of these limitations had been around during the morning. He had to go to a meeting. So they had an alternate in filling in for him, which was perfectly capable. He was certified. He was willing and able to do it. Um, but he was filling in for somebody else for a couple of hours. He helped f- plan this for this flight 845. But with the whiskey information given by the ATIS, the, it completely omitted those runway closures. So when the first officer got that information, when he got ATIS as soon as he got into the airplane, it was totally different. <laughs> what? It had, it had changed to X-ray. And then it had the runway inf- closure information again. So it was in the morning, it was on there. And in the afternoon, it was on there for all of the other uh, ATIS recalls. But from the ATIS information current from 11.05 to 12.25 of whiskey, it wasn't there. That's dumb. Yeah. That's real dumb. That was the third and biggest mistake. Now, how did that happen? Well, it turns out that there was a big disagreement between... The traffic controllers and the uh, FAA about what should be included in an ATIS information regarding runway closures. Most of the time, the consensus was that it can be on there, and it should be on there. But there seemed to be no standard form of including this in NOTAMs as well as in ATIS. So they just omitted it? So they omitted it, and it wasn't. nobody could be held accountable because there was nothing to be held accountable for. That's so stupid! But it made them, but it made for a really confusing situation in the cockpit, the tower, and the flight controller once the airplane was pushed back and ready to leave. Yep, they found that there was a res- there was a restriction on the 747 aircraft using full thrust on zero one right before the displaced threshold, which was the 1100 feet they couldn't use no matter what. They found that there was only 8400 feet plus a 500 foot clearway available for the departure on the day of the incident, and that 500 foot wasn't actually usable. They found that the approach landing system structure for 1-9 left and the entry of the barges along the clearway path of the departure runway made the clearway ineffective. There it is. They found that the tower controller assumed that the flight controller was aware of the limitations of the 747 using 0-1 right when speaking with him prior to departure of 845. So that's where it comes into effect where he's talking about he assumed that the flight controller knew that only 8,400 feet was usable by the 747. Never assume. You know what they say about assumptions. That's right. Always, it's always good to double check anyway. Yep, but he didn't. For our non-American listeners who may not understand our idioms, there is a saying, if you look at the word assume, you don't do it because it makes a blank out of you and me. Yeah. Look at the word. Yep. Take it literally. Yep. Anyways, they found that the Calculations in the Pan Am 747 route manual were based on the full 9,500 feet being usable on 01 right, not only 8,400 feet. So even Pan Am themselves, like as an airline, they had no idea 
that it was only 8,400 feet that were ever usable by the 747, and that 9,500 feet was never usable by the 747. I wonder if... I wonder who needs to make that edit. Pan Am does, absolutely. Because Pan it's Am- Pan Am's 747 route manual. They're the ones that publish and issue so it. So they were the ones who just didn't check, they just assumed? They're the ones... They didn't assume. It was the information given on the charts, to be fair. But they're basically whoever put it together didn't look deep enough to find out that, that the only 747 can't use that amount of run can't use right can't use the the overrun at the end which is so, kind of stupid isn't that the point of an overrun sort of yes in a lot of airports they can use that overrun as extra distance on takeoff the displaced threshold the only purpose of a displaced threshold is really on landing um sometimes it is for uh, in like in this case where they have to take off from the displaced threshold to avoid damaging things behind them or causing too much noise uh, but that displaced threshold is more for landing usually they displace a threshold so in other words offsetting it a thousand feet further forward than you would originally be landing if you used the the overrun before it um, and by doing that, the airplane, with a normal angle of attack for landing, avoids any obstacles or noise abatements that may be in place closer to the end of the runway. So they offset that distance, the airplane is higher when it goes over those obstacles using a normal approach. They found that Flight 845 was configured with 10 degrees of flaps and the higher reference speeds before learning that Runway 28 left was closed. Those reference speeds speeds were V1 of 156 and VR of 164. So they didn't change the reference speeds when they changed the flap. That's the next one. They found that the aircraft was then configured for 20 degrees of flaps for takeoff for 0-1 right, but the reference speeds were not changed right by the flight crew prior to departure to the lower speeds of V1 of 149 and VR of 157. So when did they change for... Well, I guess they didn't change it because V1 is the go-no-go, like you can't... That's the no turn back. Yeah, yeah you can't. that also should have been recalculated. Yep. Um, but VR is like when they say rotate. Yes. Yes, VR is you literally rotate. You can say rotate. VR or rotate. Okay. Yes. These days, they actually most often say rotate. Yeah. Because that's the action. Yes. Is the... It's not just saying, this is the velocity. It's like, no, do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't figured out, V is for velocity. They found that there was a lot of confusion regarding the NOTAM use and runway lengths at San Francisco. So that was the final finding. Basically, they say between all the information given from tower, flight control, first, you know, the the flight crew, back and forth, the manuals, there was so much confusion about the actual runway lengths and no TAM or notice to airmen use at the airport. The verbatim probable cause. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the pilot's use of incorrect takeoff reference speeds. This resulted from a series of irregularities involving A. The collection and dissemination of airport information, B. Aircraft dispatching, and C. Crew management and discipline, which collectively rendered ineffective the air carrier's operational control system. Yep. It's so nice and succinct. It is. They believe that there was just a full-on breakdown. Ridiculously wordy jargon of those... Right. So for me, there's three, like I've said, there's three major things that contributed to this accident. And one was obviously the reference speeds. That was biggest because they still could have made that departure no matter what with that. Uh, Two was the uh, lack of understanding of runway lengths and the mistake of the 8,400 feet usable instead of 9,500 feet. 
Three was the whiskey. Oh, the whiskey information, the information that was not on the whiskey. Right, the information whiskey just leaving out the runway closures altogether, making planning a confusing mess. For recommendations, I got, I took down four of the five total recommendations. Now, the recommendations section in this report, there was interesting. There were five recommendations. They repeated them three times verbatim in the report, and then that also verbatim each time followed with the FAA responded by saying the following, and they literally have the letter at the bottom of the report. I will get into that after I read these summed up recommendations, or as we had said in this month's Miranda Sode, the, what was it, de-anti-unclarification? <laughs> it was the, what was it? <laughs> de-anti-uncomplification. Complification, yeah. Yeah, it was de-anti-uncomplification. So, the simplifications... Yes, I'm oh, going the very word the anti I am, I am I'm simplifying the recommendations <laughs> or I am de anti un complicationing <laughs> these recommendations. These two, man. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good though. Okay. These include a recommendation of reviewing and implementation of the standardization of no TAMs use, notice to airmen's use, as well as the information given in ATIS, so they want a standard form. This was recommended to the FAA to make a standard set of information if a runway is closed that has to be included in a NOTAM as well as in the ATIS information. They recommended requiring having a final VREF check on the last checklist before takeoff. Basically, they want the flight crews to be absolutely sure of their reference speeds yeah. given the flaps, and it should be the last thing they check before takeoff to ensure that those speeds are correct. Since they made a change, and the only time that they had checked their reference speeds was during their pre-start checklist, they by the way. They didn't check them after they started the engines? Basically, no. They had already set it in, on the bug. They were already planning for 10 degrees of flaps. Then when they went to the 20 degrees of flaps, nowhere on a checklist did it have them recheck their reference speeds. They didn't have anything for a I feel like common sense change. would have been like, uh, okay, well, we changed flaps, so maybe we should double check the reference speeds. I don't know. It should have been on a checklist. Don't get me wrong. Yes, but, but you would think, but I mean, After there's... you start the engines should be a, a good way to be like, we should recheck before we decide to take off on this More runway. than anything, at least when you enter the runway, you should be thinking... Okay, now I have this setting flap. What's my reference speeds for that? Is this correct? Based on what we calculated. And it wasn't. But at no point in time did they do that. And part of that is because there was so much confusion back and forth about runway lengths, runway use. They just wanted to get on the road. There's so many things going on. They went for it. And it was wrong. Yep. And it went poorly. They recommended requiring the installation of runway distance markers at civil airports. And by the way, this one was definitely implemented because they definitely are around. They recommended putting this at all civil airports where commercial aircraft operate. So what these are is as you're traveling down the runway, there's actually markers on one or both sides of the runway that read distance, how much distance is left. Literally, it puts like five for 5,000 feet remaining, four, 4,000 feet remaining to, you know, whatever. It that keeps was... going all the way down. And basically that helps the pilots know, oh crap, I have 1,000 feet remaining of this runway. Fun fact, that was also a finding in my Miranda sode. It had nothing to do with the actual flight, but yeah, they put it as a finding because apparently that airport didn't have them yet. So Great, yeah. So that's something they should probably put. And I, I think that was a very worthy change. It's not a very expensive or difficult one. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely worth it. It's literally just signage. 
that just has five, four, three, two, one. Like it, you it tells take you what's off left now. <laughs> yeah, it tells you what's left. Yeah, and all that also to say, go listen to the Miranda Sodes. Little shameless plug here. Yeah, by becoming a Patreon Patreon supporter for us. Donor. Donor. That's right. Supporter. For us. Or as some of our favorite podcasters like to say, donator, which is a not donator, actually a word. Which is not a word. <laughs> but but that sounds so fun. It has the word donut in it. Donator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Go support us on Patreon. Fun fact real quick before we get back on track, because, you know, why not? Um, if I cover something in a Miranda episode, we will not cover it in a main episode. Um, and I, we will let you know if it's been covered in a Miranda episode, so that if you request a flight, as someone did this past week, I already did a Miranda episode on it, and so I was like, hey, it's on Patreon, you should go check it out. <laughs> Thanks for recommending stuff to us, though, or suggesting stuff to us. We do appreciate that. And Very we have, much so. We have taken every suggestion we've been given so far, and we would like to keep doing so. If they become overwhelming, though, we may, may have to slow it down. But so far... There's been no problem fitting all of those in. Just when you recommend them to us, you can expect that there will be a delay of maybe a couple of months before you will hear it. Because we have yeah. stuff already planned out and stuff, so we have to wait till we have a next opening to do one. Or, as I said in my Miranda episode, um, I can always cover some of those, but they will be on Patreon. So Yeah, and you would still have to wait maybe a month or two. Yeah. Please give us recommendations and suggestions. Yep. And support us on Patreon. Okay, shameless, done with the shameless plug. Shameless yeah. plug over. I only have one more recommendation, and okay. we can talk about this a little bit more. They recommended requiring manufacturers to include information about performance and controllability characteristics of an aircraft with any disabled system involving flight controls. I thought that one was interesting, because they don't really talk much about that in the report, except that, you know, they started to lose a little bit of control on their approach, because they only had one hydraulic system working. <laughs> it was lucky that they even had that. Yeah, the airplane became very sluggish because that the, those hydraulics can only work so fast. And when you get down to that, that point of approach, you're just trying to use every bit of that airplane you can. And it has to happen pretty quick. It's kind of like if you've ever driven a car without power steering. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> it's like that. It's very similar to that, where yeah. it is impossible to try. I remember one of my brother's like first cars we got from a junkyard, Yeah, and it didn't have power steering, and my uncle had to drive it home, and he was like, like grunting, trying to turn the wheel because there's no power <laughs> steering. So it's very similar to if you don't it have is. power steering in a car. It is very similar to that. And basically they said they should have a a training procedure as well as listed characteristics in the aircraft's, the manufacturer's delivered aircraft manual that includes what the characteristics of the airplane, what ex what characteristics they should expect from the airplane if they have limited controllability of any and all flight control surfaces. Now, that came up again two, three decades later when f from our last three weeks, as you might remember, where they were talking about the 737s and how they lost control of the rudder and basically making that a standard thing. Like, how do you react to that quickly? How do you make that an immediate reaction? And also including it in the testing of the aircraft and including those characteristics, the expected characteristics 
in the manuals, the flight manuals. It became a regular part of testing later, and most of these airplanes were certified around the same time. The 737s, the original 737s, and the 747 were developed at the same time. So they had the same testing regime, basically. But later, that testing was changed, and we even were watching a video on the MD-11 earlier, going through some of these paces, having limited control. What if a reverser deploys in flight? What if you get close to stall characteristics? All the normal things you have to test, but they recommended making flight control as part of that, limited flight control as part of that, and what characteristics the flight crew should expect. That came up again with the 737s, so you know that this is an ongoing thing. That's it. That's all I got for recommendations. That's all we've got on this. Cool. Well, no one died. Nobody died, Nobody thankfully. Died. The two people were severely injured in the cabin when... And the, I, it didn't Did go through the... Did a light go through the cabin? Uh, yeah. It was actually a piece of rebar that was believed to be part Ow. of... Oh! Yeah, that was believed to be part of the, the basically, handlebar or stand getting up to the lights. It wasn't part of the lights directly. It was the rebar the leading to The railing of the... Yeah, the railing of the... the it just, like, hit them? Like... It, it plowed went, through them. So it went through the the bottom right of the fuselage, created a massive hole. It then went through several rows of seats. There's actually another point as well that it went through the fuselage and uprooted several other seats, went underneath the seats anyways. Um, thankfully, only two people were injured in 4748G. Um, it does so one not in front specify of the, other. the extent of their injuries. It does not specify the extent of their injuries at all. Hmm. However, that piece of rebar managed to... It didn't just go into the fuselage at the bottom. It went through the bottom of the fuselage, then went through the the rear galley, through several lavatories. Yeah, it tore through the bathrooms. It then went through the rear bulkhead, which is the rear pressurized uh, wall of the airplane. It holds the pressure in. It has to be... A perfect conical shape, basically, to keep the pressure in the airplane in a, a standard way. Because if you give sharp corners in a pressurized tube... It goes poorly. It goes poorly. Get into that another time. Anyways, it went through the rear bulkhead, so it was a good thing they never pressurized this airplane. And then it proceeded to exit out of the top of the fuselage beside the tail. Oh, did you want to mention what this plane is nowadays? Yes. So, this 747 still flew again. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. How? This this 747 was then brought into the maintenance hangar in San Francisco and went through a ton of repairs. They completely repaired the whole airplane, which is unbelievable, because if you see the pictures of the damage, it's just absolutely crazy. But yeah, they managed to repair the airplane. It lived out a full-service life with several airlines. It lived with Pan Am for a long time, and then it moved to several other airlines for a while, including Evergreen, I believe. And eventually, when the airplane did retire, it was flown to South Korea, and it became a restaurant. It's still it's there today. You it's can, a restaurant? It is a restaurant in South Korea. It is not very well kept because of building height restrictions. They had to lop off part of the top of the tail. So it's a little shorter tail than normal. And because of the area in which this airplane takes up, they had to lop off some of the end of the wings. Um, it's a little bit rusty and this and that. It's not very well kept. But the point is, you can actually still go see this airplane. It is a restaurant in South Korea. It still exists. It's the, se- it's the second 747 that was ever built. The first one still exists, too, and that one you can go visit here in the U.S. It's in Seattle. We're going to go see it. Oh, it's there? It's We're going to go see it, yep, Ooh. in just a couple of weeks, in a few weeks. Cool. 
Is that I mean, the one with the guts completely out of it? No, yeah, well, the seats aren't in it, uh, in the part that, at least when I was there, the seats weren't in it. I don't know if they've changed that, but they had a lot of displays and exhibits inside. The first time I saw it, they were redoing the Museum of Flight in Seattle at the Boeing Field. I should clarify where all of this is. They were redoing the Museum of Flight to include these airplanes, and you could go visit them. You had to walk across the street to go see them, but they were just basically parked in the dirt. You'd walk around them, and you could see these airplanes. They're a huge part of Boeing's history, a huge part of aviation history in the United States. I remember the first time I saw this airplane, it was in pretty rough shape, to be honest, the very first 747. The engines had been removed. It was sitting in the dust. It was very dirty. The paint was getting old. But then I went back to go see it just a couple of years ago with Brendan. They had completely redone that part of the museum, put it under an, uh, a big covered shelter, and they had repainted it. They managed to restore the engines, put it back inside, and then you could actually go inside of it and look inside. And it's just the coolest thing to be able to see that airplane back in good shape. Are the decks still in place? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're both decks are still there. I don't think you can go upstairs and visit the top deck, however. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, that's like I don't one of recall. the cooler parts of the 747. I know, but to be honest, I mean, the 747, yeah, that's cool. But it was a really short deck on that first 747. It's still another deck. It is, and that's cool and all. But I don't recall, to be honest, and we're going to find out when we go what that looks like these we days. We will be going the Saturday after this episode airs. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It's so far in the future for us that my brain's just not there yet. I know. <laughs> but that's okay. And it's going to be cool. That and get to see the Concorde, which is the big... I'm so excited. The big one we're going to get Miranda to go see. Miranda has an obsession with the Concorde. I want to go inside so bad. Well, you're going to get to. I was talking to Brendan about it yesterday, and he was like, it's pretty cool, but they put plexiglass over all the seats. Yeah, they do. Um, they don't want you so to sit on them. You don't, and, like, pick at them, because people would definitely be, like, the people who would, like, pick them off, you yeah. know? Because it's, uh, first of all, it's part of history, but people are dumb. Weird. Stupid. Dumb. Yeah. And yeah. so they'll start picking at them. and. But you still get to go inside, and you still get to see it and see what it was like, which is pretty cool. The windows are so tiny. So there's that. There's the original 737 is there. The original 727 is there. And 707. Uh, as for a 707, what they have is the Air Force One. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which I think is the most interesting piece of history. I won't get into that, but it is Maybe pretty Maybe after we go, we can do that, but... Yeah. All right. Well, that was Pan American 845. Yep. At least no one died. No one died. And nobody died. And nobody died. <laughs> That's different. Have a good week, you guys. Go follow us on social media, all that stuff. Please, we still have a, we have a, like, six reviews on Apple Podcast. Please, 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 a lot, 50% of our listeners listen on Apple Podcast. Please leave us a five-star review. Um, It helps us get up there. It takes, like, uh, three minutes of your time. And yeah. it helps other people get to see our podcast and listen and help support us so we can keep doing this. So We love getting your feedback, like, through email and through messages and stuff, and that's great. We love seeing that you guys really really like it but can you translate that also into ratings and reviews because that does that helps bring in more people like you to listen and so you can maybe connect with those people and talk about the things we talk about and then if you have the means to do so please support us on patreon you can listen to miranda sodes and the conversation we're about to have after we hit stop on this recording which is going to be Miranda swearing, probably. Oh, most likely, yeah. And um, blooper um, reels of our cats meowing a lot. Ad-free episodes. Ad-free episodes is you're you're going to get ad-free episodes if you support us on Patreon at the very least. So, yep. Do all that. Have a good week, and we'll talk to you next week. 
keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.